listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. Last week, I had the privilege of speaking to Professor Rory Ryan's class in federal courts at the Baylor Law School, just down the road in Waco, Texas, about the Texas abortion statute called SBA, now before the U.S. Supreme Court in two cases. The presentation was recorded, and I've divided that recording into two podcast episodes. This is the first, and it covers some background about the SBA cases and the first of four major issues that they present. A state's sovereign immunity, as defined by the longstanding Supreme Court opinion of Ex Parte Young. Part two goes on to address the other three issues, questions of standing, both as the ability to sue under the Texas law and to sue about it, whether the statute has avoided state action by delegating enforcement to private citizens, and finally, reviews the inherent equitable power of a federal court to enjoin unconstitutional laws under the also longstanding Supreme Court case of N. Ray Debs. I hope that you enjoy these presentations and find them informative about the seemingly simple, but in fact, bafflingly complex Texas abortion statute. Um, the humor that touched off at yesterday was uh, one of our local TV stations in Dallas wanted somebody to comment when the Supreme Court ruled in the abortion case. There was a lot of scuttlebutt that was going to come out Monday morning, so I got me lined up at 9.30, at which point nothing happened. What came out was uh, Tennessee versus Mississippi about the uh, who owns the water supply for the city of Memphis. If you're from Memphis, that's a big deal. If you're not, a little less interesting. So I literally discussed nothing yesterday uh, for a couple of minutes. And so we all acted like we were doing something and coming on down the road, which is what touched off the, uh, the tweet about coming to lecture about nothing. But all the joking around about that decided what Rory says is right. In, in I've been 30 years since I took federal courts, and there have been two other times when I think that topic has been as relevant to the United States, the election cases, the uh, uh, Bush versus Gore 10, 15 years ago, and the Trump cases that we went through in the last election cycle. That was a big deal. That decides who the president was. This is the same thing, that what's in front of the Supreme Court right now is basically how the courts function as a branch of government. It's Marbury versus Madison type stuff. They may or may not jump in all the way. I suspect one of the reasons the opinion didn't come out yesterday is Chief Justice Roberts is trying to find some way through the wilderness that he can get a majority on and not have a bunch of opinions making a confusing situation even more so. But we're waiting for potentially very big news in how Article Three of the Constitution functions along with the other two. And by way of background, there are two, um, let's see here, yes, there, this is the law that caused all the problems. And I'm gonna talk about the law itself in just a second, but where we are procedurally with it, there are two cases that came out of Texas challenging this. There's a bunch of them, but they've been consolidated in two, which are both in front of the Supreme Court. One is the private case. Uh, I'll call it Whole Women's Health, or I might refer to it as the provider's case. It is brought by private actors against various government officials. And there are certain jurisdictional issues that come along with that. The other case filed roughly a month later is United States versus Texas. Much simpler in terms of parties. You got one plaintiff, you got one defendant. Um, and so in that respect, it's simpler, it's cleaner, it avoids problems in the other, uh, it creates problems of its own. The Supreme Court set them on an unbelievably fast schedule for oral argument, faster than Bush versus Gore, where the, the, the hard stop in the Constitution was uh, right in front of everybody's face in like a couple of weeks full briefing, and there it has sat for the last month or so. 
Uh, there is another abortion case that has been working its way through the normal process, except for argument in a couple of weeks, early December sometime. That came also up from the Fifth Circuit, and it involves a substantive issue about Roe versus Wade. It could be the Supreme Court's waiting to issue sort of a package deal, substance and procedure all in one. It could be that they want to resolve these cases promptly and get this situation uh, straightened out because the procedural issues are what's really more important here uh, than whatever the substantive issue may be. We don't know. Only John Roberts knows. But that's uh, where we find ourselves now. These two cases have been argued and are awaiting decision, um, and the, the, the substantive case has been fully briefed and will be argued in a week or two, and then we'll see what they do. So this is the law that caused all the trouble. It went into effect September 1, um, and it's uh, referred to often by its legislative shorthand, SB 8. The official name of it is the Texas Heartbeat Act. Uh, like most statutes, it has a lot of lofty statements of purpose, technical definitions, but you get to this, the remedy section. It says that any person who is not associated with state government can sue any person who does these things, performs abortion, induces abortion, knowingly engages in conduct that aids or abets. And that is um, simple. It's in one page. I've dropped out some stuff that's sort of later in the statute, but it's really just one sentence, but it is devilishly complicated. It is the designer, that's not Rory, by the way, that's Professor Moriarty, scheming genius of Sherlock Holmes, but the, the, it, is, it is a brilliant piece of draftsmanship in terms of how it cleverly skates its way through just about every doctrine that has been developed over time to allow the federal courts to intervene and take view of, of statutes that are constitutionally problematic. It is a very, very clever piece of work. So there are four, uh, this is where you start to, to argue about things. Uh, even the labels of some of these doctrines are subject to a little bit of debate. These are how I define them for purposes of this discussion. I wanted to spend a minute on what the topics were. People can argue about whether I've labeled these properly. Uh, let's not do that today. But for purposes of talking, this is what I wanted to talk about. The first is something that I understand you haven't covered in this semester, ex parte young, and the question of sovereign immunity and how it comes into play in these civil rights cases. So you'll get the 10 or 15 minute preview on ex parte young. Um, standing, and its friend even more standing, because there's a lot of standing issues posed by the statute. Um, the question related to immunity of state action, and I'm going to talk about what that means in the context of when the federal courts can interject themselves into a, a situation. And then uh, a phrase, I, I don't know if this is in the briefing or not, it turned up somewhere, the United States with a straight face was talking about the equitable reservoirs, the, the reservoirs of equitable power that the federal courts have. They may have vast reservoirs, but let's just say in the Fifth Circuit, talking about equitable reservoir is a great way for your ship to sink in the reservoir. And I don't think it played real well in the Supreme Court either, which is why I don't think they talked about equitable reservoirs anymore there. But I kind of liked it. It sounds all learned, consistent with the goal of Thanksgiving dinner. You can say equitable reservoir, and people will be impressed. Um, this is not a lot of doctrine. Um, if you've had a chance to look through any of the briefing or you've seen any of the discussions about it, there are cases out there, but part of the genius of this statute is that there just isn't really a case about it. You've got some cases on this aspect of it. You've got some well-developed bodies of law about a couple of these things, but they aren't really relevant to the way this is drafted. So unlike, unlike, say, a personal jurisdiction question where there's tons of law 
and the problem is just sorting out the inconsistencies in it and then finding what's most applicable to your situation. This is like, well, what, what, what book do we take off the shelf? Uh, it sort of is so outside the box. But there are a couple of cases that I'll, get, I'll give a little bit of discussion to by way of background, but not so much because they're controlling in sort of a traditional sense of the term. So uh, ex parte young and immunity is where I wanted to start. And to start with it, we have a little story, the kids that are here with me. By the way, my two assistants are here. Camden Cole, 8th grade, is there. Cecilia Cole, 16, is there. They were good sports and got up this morning. And as a reward for coming down here, we stopped at the Sonic in Italy. How about that? <laughs> first class, traveling first class here. So uh, I counted, it was 29 years ago, almost to the day, I would have been sitting in a Fed courts class down the road in Austin at UT. And my professor was the eminent Charles Allen Wright. And he was uh, larger than life, literally. He was about 6'4", uh, he's a college football player, big guy, heavy, I mean, he ate a lot. Um, wore those three-piece suits all the time. Massive, massive presence, right? The Wright and Miller Treatise, we've all heard of it. It's cited dozens of times a day by courts. Um, among other idiosyncrasies, he didn't stand when he lectured. He sat down because he was kind of old and fat, to be honest, but he, it made him even more intimidating to have this guy sit. And he didn't call on people. He'd been teaching so long that having women come to law school was a new development for him, and he felt it ungentlemanly to call upon women. So he just didn't call anyone. And he would just stop and ask questions, and people would answer his questions. He comes in, sits himself down. Class is silent, and he says, and he really did talk like Professor Kingsfield. Really, I'm not making this up. It's not just my memory after 29 years. He really was like that. And he says, what are the three most important constitutional opinions from the Supreme Court? Silence in the room. And at this point, let's just, I'd gotten in the habit of on my way into class, I'd realized that his lecture notes for the class were basically his treatise. He had a photographic memory, really did. Didn't bring notes to class just kind of recited what was in there. If you stopped and looked in his treatise, you would know what he was gonna say. So I noticed that one day, and I just got in the habit of stopping and looking. That's relevant, because the treatise had the answer to that question, but the case book didn't. And so I'm thinking, somebody else looked in the treatise. Uh, so I'm sitting there quietly. People start raising their hands. It's a disaster, it's a bloodletting. Nobody, I mean, you would think it's fed courts, somebody's gonna get martyred, right? He's gonna act like that's a good one. And the next case in the book is Ex Parte Young, so maybe that's one of the three cases. People are Roe versus Wade and this and that and the other. Right? Just, no. <laughs> no. Because Wright knows somebody out of the hundred odd people in this class has looked at the treatise and he's going to wait all day. Ten minutes goes by. Fifteen minutes goes by. Probably every minute somebody knew is getting to silence. People are raising their hands. This deck is right. No! Finally. There I go. I said, um, an argument can be made that it's Marbury versus Madison, uh, Young, and Martin versus Hunter's lessee. And he was angled. So we got half the class was behind him. All of my friends were over there. And they're going, what the? <laughs> <laughs> the bird. He goes, indeed! <laughs> And what would the argument be, Mr. Coles? You see, friends are like, <laughs> they know. You've looked at the treatise. You don't remember the Oh, yes, I did. I said, Marbury applies the federal constitution to the federal legislature. 
Martin versus Hunter's lessee as against state legislatures and ex parte young as against the state executive. I wasn't that snarky. My voice sounded more like ex parte young against the state executive. But I was right. And he said, and then they're like, you've never heard such carrying on class. People have birds flying in the back of the room. And so anyway, that's why I remember that is because uh, I can never forget that moment. And I will say to this day, 29 years later, I have yet to read Martin versus Hunter's lessee. I have no idea why Wright thought it was such an important case. Uh, it's just one of those cases early in the con law book, you kind of flip over maybe, and life goes on. Uh, so I'm not going to be talking about that. But I am going to talk about, I am going to talk about ex parte young. Uh, because Marbury is uh, fundamental. Article 3 doesn't work without Marbury. That's the baseline. You don't have to cite it all the time. It gets cited, but it's just a make-weight thing. Um, but it's, it's definitional. Article 3 functions because of Marbury. But ex parte young, you don't see it so much in my practice. It's more of a commercial practice. But in terms of civil rights, in terms of enforcing the Constitution, it is the workhorse of the federal courts. It is the way that the 14th Amendment is put into action in this country. This is the background principle. Uh, let's see, 11. That's the 11th Amendment. Uh, and so the 11th Amendment says, uh, well, it doesn't say, but the Supreme Court has told us that it says you cannot sue a state in federal court. Period. Hard stop. It's the 11th Amendment, right? The first 10 are the Bill of Rights. This is the first thing that we got around to amending the Constitution about after the Bill of Rights. The reasons for this have to do with a bunch of money that was owed as a result of the Revolutionary War. Uh, they're lost to the sands of history, but the principle is still there, and it's been rock solid for as long as we've had the 11th Amendment, which goes back to about 1800 or so. You cannot sue a state in federal court. This brings us to the late... 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and the railroads. There's two railroad cases that I'm going to talk about today that define the structure that leads us into our abortion statute now. One is Ex parte Young, the other being Debs, that I'll talk about in a little bit. But what happened was uh, the, rail, the Golden Spike is driven in about 1870. The National Railroad Network begins to develop. The nation's economy grows by leaps and bounds overnight. And the state of Minnesota basically decided to shake down the entire country. The regulators at the time had set the freight car at X. I forget what it was. Minnesota said, in Minnesota, it's half of X. It's going to be significantly lower. If you don't like it, we're going to charge you criminally and fine you hundreds and thousands of dollars, which at the time was a great deal of money. And, oh, you might, if you really don't like it, you can move your train. Oh, you can't because you spent millions of dollars laying it down. So let's see the money. And the railroad said, well, this is crazy. We put down rail all over the country. If you guys get away with this, we can't function. There's no way. We have to have this national price in order for the railroads to work. Minnesota said, it sucks to be you. Write us a check. And so the railroads sued Minnesota and everybody they could find associated with the law in federal court in Minnesota. Because if they sued in state court, the state judges were probably going to defer to the Minnesota uh, Treasury. Uh, the gentleman with the big mustache is Arthur Young, who was the Attorney General of Minnesota at the time, and he was in charge of enforcing the statute. He's ultimately, the federal court rules for the railroads, finds that uh, international, interstate commerce carries the day. Uh, Young is held in contempt, and it finds its way to the Supreme Court. Young confidently says to the Supreme Court, I'm a state. I admit the state is Minnesota and not Mr. Young, but I'm the Attorney General. The only reason I'm being sued is because I'm a state. You can't do this. Since the 1800s, you've held that a state cannot be sued in federal court. I am essentially the state. You can't sue me. 
And so the court has a problem on its hands because that's literally correct. You can't sue a state in federal court. On the other hand, if you don't allow this state to be sued in federal court, the national rail system is going to fall apart and they're going to have another panic on their hands and a bad one. So the Supreme Court cogitates for a while and comes back and says, we have an answer. You are in fact are not a state, you're an individual named Mr. Young, and you're being sued in your official capacity. We just came up with that. That sounds pretty slick, doesn't it? Official, it's like equitable reservoir, official capacity. But with that way, we get around the stat. The amendment doesn't say a thing about suing people named Young or Smith or Ryan or anything else. It says you can sue all the people you want to in federal court, subject, of course, to the other rules. So you're an individual. It happens to be you're an individual wearing the hat of the Attorney General of Minnesota, and, and this is the key language from it, your office and your power by virtue of your office connects you to the duty to enforce the law, unquestionably true. He was the guy that brought the prosecutions against the railroad that caused all the problems. You're the guy. And so an injunction against you personally in your official capacity will solve the problem. We don't have to sue the state. We just have to have an order against you. Stop bothering the railroads. And so they carved that little area there and went on down the road. That became invaluable as the civil rights revolutions of the 20th century went forward, because otherwise you think about, well, think about the abortions. Roe versus Wade. Why is that Henry Wade and not Roe versus Texas? Because you can't sue Texas in federal court. You can sue Henry Wade all day long. And he's sued in his official capacity as in charge of enforcing the Texas criminal abortion statute at the time. Interesting footnote, this comes in handy later, the, the court is talking about one of the other arguments Young said is, is well, there's going to be, once we impose criminal sanctions on these railroads, they can appeal, they can challenge, they got some constitutional problem, the courts of Minnesota are open to them. They can argue all day long, it'll go to the Minnesota Supreme Court, and if the U.S. Supreme Court wants to hear it, they can hear it. There's a plenty of time down the road to hear about that. The Supreme Court says no. In the meantime, they're going to be out of business, and their agents are all going to be in jail, and this risk is something the company ought not be required to take. You might be hearing echoes of some of the discussion that we've had about the abortion statute, because the the, the genius, one of the genius moves of our SB8 is that language about any person, anybody can bring a lawsuit against anyone that has anything to do with an abortion other than getting one. But a provider, someone that drives their friend, that's, you're good to go. There's no res judicata stop in there. You can just keep suing over and over again about the same thing. That's why since SB8 went into effect, the number of abortions in Texas has plunged because they're afraid of crippling liability. And that's the issue in front of the Supreme Court right now. It's the, the big flood of lawsuits never happened. There have been a couple of uh, lawsuits filed there, just curiosities. But the fear of the flood has had a very real effect on the exercise of whatever right is guaranteed by the Constitution with respect to abortion. So this language about risk is quite relevant in this context. We forget about that because most people look at Ex parte Young and think about the kind of you know, Marbury slide a hand move there of coming up with the notion of an official capacity. But the idea of litigation now is difference making, existence, existential, compared to litigation later is an aspect of Young that we forget about. But it's relevant, it's part of the opinion. Uh, which brings us a uh, zoom forward in time, a whole bunch of stuff, the whole woman's health versus Jackson. An ex parte young case. This is the private case. Whole Woman's Health, an abortion provider in the Austin area, 
uh, litigious one too. It's frequently the name plaintiff in some of these cases going back several years. I forget who Jackson is. But they sued a number of state actors. Uh, they, they sued some clerks, they sued a defendant class of judges, they sued Ken Paxton, because why not, uh, and a bunch of other people. And this, uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, was real interested in this case. They actually took the case before the district court ruled. The district court had a temporary injunction hearing set on Monday or Tuesday, and Monday, the Fifth Circuit Sunday, the day before the uh, event was going to be held, the Fifth Circuit said, we're feeling supervisory today. We're going to have a, uh, we're issuing a supervisory writ and we're gonna writ all this. And so they writted everything. Uh, that went to the Supreme Court in early September and then the opinion came out a little bit later once they had a little more time. And this goes, this is directly language out of Ex parte Young. They say, all right, let's go back. Let's look at that. Mr. Young is, a, is the case study we ought to look at. What was he? He was the guy in charge of enforcing the statute. If he couldn't enforce the statute, it wasn't gonna be enforced. If the Office of the Attorney General couldn't bring prosecution, there wasn't going to be a prosecution, there wasn't going to be a problem. None of these people has anything to do with, with, tech, with enforcement of the statute. They're just private litigants or they're judges and court staff. Those people aren't making the decision to bring lawsuits. And in fact, not only, I think I spelled syllable wrong, but not only are they not people like Young, but the statute expressly says, if you have anything to do with the state of Texas, you can't sue. So whether or not you're the attorney general, if you're like work for the state postal service or something, you can't sue either. You have to be completely removed from the state. So they say not only as a practical matter, these people aren't doing anything like Mr. Young, anyone doing anything like Mr. Young physically can't under the way this has been worded. So the that simple sentence about any person who is not the state brilliantly gets around uh, the definition of official capacity in Ex parte Young. And the Fifth Circuit continues on the subject of suing state court judges, state court clerks, and other such actors. It points out, and this quotation is from a longer discussion, there's more case law behind it, but remember Young was a decision maker. Young would say, I'm gonna prosecute the such and such railroad for violating our shakedown law here in Minnesota. But all state, all clerks do is take things for filing. I can go to the clerk with my $10 filing fee in my lawsuit or whatever the filing fee is. It says, I would like to file an unconstitutional lawsuit. I would like to get a remedy that is abusive and violates prohibitions against punitive damages. Will you take that? What? Your filing care. Their job is to take things and file them. And if they look like what is supposed to be accepted under the rules, they take them. And judges? They don't do any of that either. They just sit there. They receive cases or controversies the same way the federal courts do. People just show up and present cases. They make decisions about the cases. They apply the law, but they don't make a decision to bring the case in the first place. And the ex parte young itself says that you that, that, that cannot be sued for that reason. This is the language itself explicitly is in determining its discussion of who can be sued. It's dicta. I don't think they sued judges in that case, but they're saying, let's be clear about this. Young can't sue. The courts sue because they're, they, make decisions, but they make a different kind of decision. They're reviewing the case. They're not making a decision to institute the prosecution in the first place. It goes on to cite some other case law. So that's the state of the law of the Fifth Circuit in October as they see ex parte Young. There's Mr. Young, no state act, no, no enforcement connection for a couple of different reasons. As to the judges, it's even further out there because of the nature of what they do. 
So this is the issue, uh, the question presented at the Supreme Court as, as it has formally stated it in the private case. It's under review right now. And the language is a little, a little slanted. You can tell the petitioners drafted it. But can a state insulate from federal court review, blah, 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 by delegating to the general public? That's the question. The arguments, I commend them to you if you're interested in that sort of thing. They're, they're technical. They get into a lot of ins and outs about Young. Uh, a couple of interesting features of them. One is how you pronounce ex parte Young. I think it's ex parte Young. How many of you think it's ex parte? Ex parte? A surprising number of Supreme Court justices say ex parte. I think it was Breyer. I mean, these guys, oh, it's had a patrician Boston accent of his, going to ex parte Young. What are you talking about? And it was more than one of them. Um, so there's apparently some part of the country that thinks it's ex parte Young. So it's kind of interesting to hear that. The arguments are very good. Elizabeth Prologar, the new Solicitor General, is outstanding. She's super efficient, uh, really interesting to listen to. Uh, the, the presentation on the respondent side, the state Solicitor General argued for Texas. He's very good. Uh, the drafter of the statute also spoke, a guy named Jonathan Mitchell, who had been a Solicitor General some years ago. He doesn't really represent anybody. He represents some Amici in the case. but. He wrote it, so why not hear from him? You talk about a frosty reception. I mean, this is a guy who's telling the Supreme Court, I outsmarted all nine of you. That's right. You guys think you're smart, I'm smarter. Because I came up with a statute that puts you out of business. And I don't think he got a question in the five minutes he argued. So you can't tell what the court's going to do from that, but icy, icy, icy was the room when he argued. Um, and his position is, is unadorned, what it says in the first line, a state can, and this state did. We don't have to allow federal judicial review. It's interesting to have these rules like Ex parte Young. We didn't write it that way, and you're just going to have to deal with that, federal courts. Generally, daring a federal judge like that is unwise. Don't do that in your practice. Um, but that's the question, is whether this machinery uh, gets around, the, the, has successfully shut down private litigants or not. And there's the tension. I found this tug of war clip art thing. I thought it was kind of cool. You have a tension between who exactly is it in the government that you're enjoining? Because the second you expand it past Mr. Young, are you sticking your nose in too far? Are you starting to run the state courts for them? Are you starting to run administrative agency? Are you substituting the judgment of the federal courts for political judgments by the state? And on the other hand, you have the practical problem that the National Railroad is on the brink of with it, the National in Texas, that the rights guaranteed by Roe and KC are in trouble. They're there, they're on the books, but it's very, very hard for lots of people to actually do anything with those rights. And so that's the balance that is in present in any ex parte young case. There were tons of these during the election in the last cycle, uh, the different issues, but similar kind of balance. And that's the issue in front of the Supreme Court now. So I'll go to number two, standing by the longest of cycle. I wanted, since I know you hadn't talked about it before, I wanted to just lay out what happened in Ex Parte Young. I'm open to questions about it. I'm happy to carry on, but I thought I'd stop, take a breath. While I was taking a breath, politely ask if anybody had a question, and then resume with standing in just a second as I sip my coffee. You don't have to ask. You can ask. Go ahead. Ask. Uh, I was going to say, you don't have to ask with any ask, so that's cool. So, so in terms of the uh, enforcement and, and the role of like, clerks and judges, I saw that... Um, Poland's only cited Shelley v. Kramer once. Ah. Why isn't Shelley v. Kramer kind of more authority? It's a, that's a very relevant case. I'm going to discuss it when I get to state action, but that is the, that's the case the other direction. Um, 
And it applies to Young as much as to uh, to the state action question. Let me let me cover it there. Oh, yeah. I, but you're so Shelley versus Kramer is a civil rights case from the right to World War II, but it involves clerks. And it's as the name suggests, it's an ex parte Young Shelley versus Kramer. Kramer's some clerk somewhere, and that that's kind of the high watermark of state action. They're held there that a clerk that accepts a racially restrictive covenant for filing is engaging in state action and is thus the kind of person that is subject to an ex parte young lawsuit. The court hit that high watermark and it's been backed down ever since then. It's, that's a substantial intrusion into state affairs, but nevertheless, the law's been on the books since the late 40s. So that's the case. The, the court has to, among the many things the Supreme Court has to do in resolving this is that pesky Shelley case. Do you apply it literally the way it's written, in which case it's a strong case for the challengers? Do you kind of follow the trend of backing away from it, in which case it just sort of fades away? But that's the moneymaker on, on that particular issue is Shelley for sure. episode of Coal Mind, I presented the first part of a recent talk that I gave at the Baylor Law School about the new Texas abortion statute, SB 8. This part gave a general introduction to the law and then focused on sovereign immunity and the Supreme Court case of Ex Parte Young. If you enjoyed the episode, I encourage you to listen to part two, which examines three other issues before the Supreme Court about the statute, standing, state action, and the limits on a federal court's power to issue injunctions against a law that it finds to be unconstitutional. For upcoming episodes, I expect to continue having interviews with other notable voices from around Texas and the country, and to keep on discussing topics about the ongoing proceedings involving SBA, as well as new laws in Texas about the voting process that will take effect for the 2022 election. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening and look forward to sharing with you again soon.